You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and get ready to study God's Word together in a series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. Hi, it's good to see you. It's great to have... um... It's great to have all our campuses who are joining us by video to join us as well. We're here at Rolling Meadows and I'm excited to study God's Word with you. If you're new here, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to try to study God's Word together in the book of Acts, where we're in a series. It's taking us years, but that's okay. It's, uh, it's great. Uh, we're in the book of Acts, Acts 13, verses 4 to 12 today. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. The first time I ever um, led a mission trip was to Guatemala, and it went awesome. High school kids, took about 20 kids there. My brother-in-law was, um, he was a missionary there, and so we had somebody on the ground to help us with all the things. I remember coming back from that trip thinking, man, this is a great way to engage the hearts and minds of um, young people and especially get them to see the needs beyond the borders that they're so accustomed to. So the following year, it was a no-brainer for me and my wife uh, to say, well, why don't we do another one of these? This time, though, we decided to go to southern Mexico to the state of Chiapas, which is, at at that time, this is in the 1990s, at that time was actually quite a dangerous place to go. There uh, were factions who were fighting back against the government there. Um, we had missionaries there, our church did, and uh, these two dear older women who um, we got there and, uh, or, or who, were, who had gotten there years before, 20, 30 years they'd been on the field, and they had set up this uh, kind of a camp, a Christian camp for all the kids from the region who would come and they'd spend their summers there. For those of you who are the campuses, there was just heavenly music just playing right behind me. Lord must like camps, I guess, right? Um, so we had this camp, uh, or they had this camp, and lots of, lots of the kids would come, come there. And so we were like, this is great. This is going to be a great opportunity for us to go down there. We can serve, build some stuff, whatever. So we... Uh, Decided to get on the plane. We got on the plane, Washington State. We flew through Dallas, Texas into Mexico. We arrived at Dallas. Delta Airlines was being great to host us and help us. Before we get on the plane to go to Mexico, the guy from Delta Airlines comes and says, um, do you have everybody's passports? To which I replied, passports? One would think that somebody my age would know that you needed passports, but this is 1990s. I mean, you didn't need a passport to do anything. So we were like, well, I, I was told by a friend prior to going that you only need, um, you only need uh, birth certificates to get in. And he said, well, like if you go by land, sure, but if you're gonna go by air, it's gonna be passports. So I don't know what to do. And I said, dude, you gotta help me out here. Can you, you just send us? And so he called the, the consulate and they said, all right, well, why don't you send them? And, th- and he said, look, you might arrive there and they might just turn you right back around, just so you know. So I was thinking to myself, man, I don't wanna have to explain this to all the parents. So we're gonna try it, right? Get all the past birth certificates that I had and the IDs. And so we send us down there. And of course we get to the Mexican border in the, air- in the airport and the guy's like, yeah, whatever, come on in. It doesn't really matter. We're just, we're fine. Well, you can, you can arrive. So praise God, right? So we arrive, <clears throat> we go into the, into the area. We had to take a six, seven hour bus trip, I think it was, in order to get all the way to this location. When we get to the, kids are complaining like crazy, right? Because it's not as fun as they thought. They thought, you know, you just arrive and you get settled in the Hilton or whatever, but that didn't happen. We arrived at this camp, which is, it's a Mexican camp, right? It's not like Camp Harvest. It's not like it's, it's a Mexican camp where they just, they don't have all of the amenities that you would, you would think. But they did have a massive dormitory block, which was great. I mean, they had been given money to build this thing years ago. And this was in the spring. And so the dorms had been closed for like about seven, eight months at this point. 
And they don't go in there during that time. So when we arrive, these two older women are like, oh, we're so great to have you. We're t-, it was like, we're exhausted. We're going to send all the kids down while I talk to the, uh, to the older ladies, uh, missionaries, and ask them, um, you know, how it's going to work and all these sorts of things. We had communicated through email or through uh, phone or text or whatever it was in those days, 1990s. I can't remember what we did. Anyway, um, the kids go down to this dormitory block, and I hear this blood-curdling screen after about four minutes. Apparently, what they had done is they had gone down, and they had opened the doors to the dorm, and when they had opened the doors to the dorm, there was a plague of frogs that came all out, these massive frogs just hopping out. And behind the frogs were, no joke, scorpions all over the floor, scurrying everywhere to hide. <laughs> so the girls come screaming, and the guys are like, yes, you know, like, oh my goodness. And so we race down there and we see the scorpions and the frogs and everything. So I took the guys and said, everyone put your shoes on and we'll try to kick them out, right? So we were kicking the scorpions and the frogs out and the, everybody's freaking out. I am not sleeping here, one of the girls said. Well, you could sleep outside where there's a lot more of them. Finally, uh, things settled down. We get everybody in their beds. They didn't sleep well that night because they were thinking, there's a scorpion on me the whole time, you know? Um, We ended up uh, the next day, uh, it was a Sunday, and uh, I was getting into the back of a, a, you know, the way you get around is on on the back of a flatbed, right? Because why not? So we get all these 20 kids on the back of this flatbed, and all these dear women said, we're literally looking to hear, hearing from you this morning. And I said, I'm sorry, what? We're going to this church, about 1,000 people in this Mexican church, and I'm expected to preach a sermon, which was news to me. So uh, I prepared a sermon in the back of a flatbed, looking off into the distance, thinking, oh my word. Uh, so I went, I preached the sermon, and uh, it was only about 15 minutes long, that you would be so lucky, right? You guys, I mean, it was 15 minutes long because that's all I could muster and my particular is 23 years old. And 15 minutes long, these people are used to an hour and a half sermon. So uh, they were very upset, the whole church, thousand people, very upset. Um, later on that week, we ended up taking a day off. We went to the beach and no, no joke, there was a hurricane that was in the area. And we, I mean, I don't know. It just looked like a, I'm from Seattle. It's a nice day, right? Drizzly and a little wind. Uh, kids were swimming out there, big waves. I was like, those are big waves, you know, but who cares? They're not going to die. Anyway. So they, they come back in. It's, I got back a couple weeks later to, the, to, to our church, and I was reprim- my father-in-law, who's the pastor, sat me down and said, no, now explain to me what happened on this trip. And I was like, ah, it's no big deal. They were in the hurricane and, you know. And uh, he reprimanded me quite forcefully and, and said, man, there's a lot of parents who are really upset. And I was like, really? Why? Well, because you basically took their kids into an area. I didn't tell you, by the way, that there was a section. We went to do a mission uh, to serve in this little town. And while we were in the little town, the, the rebels came in and they started riding through the town, shooting their guns in the air. Whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. I told my wife, this is not what I expected. (laughs) Uh, And that's the way it is, right? Usually when you go and you take a risk for Jesus, whatever it is, don't you expect, hey, I'm doing God's thing. God's going to come along with a wind and blow, just blow me, blow me into success. I mean, surely that's the, the least he could do. I mean, I'm sacrificing all of this time and energy to go and serve him. We want to see these Kim's kids get closer to Christ and get an eye for the mission of God. And you'd expect God to at least attend that effort with a little bit of, you know, something, something. Not opposition, not everything falling apart in front of you, not getting back and having your job taken from you. I mean, these are not the kinds of things you expect the Lord to do or permit when you're trying to serve him. But if you ever talk to anybody who's ever been in missions or ever taken any kind of risk with Jesus, one of the first things they'll tell you is, you know, when you take the risk, uh, the next thing that happens is usually opposition. It comes in all sorts of forms. This is the next thing that usually happens is opposition. 
So this passage this is the first passage, Acts, Acts 13, verses 4 to 12, is the first passage that describes the mission that Paul and Barnabas have gone on. They've been commissioned by the church at Syrian Antioch, and they're being sent out to, as missionaries. They go to the, uh, this island, and they face trouble. So in the passage, here's what I think we can learn. Um, what should we remember when we decide to reach out to our world with a gospel? What, what, what should we remember when we take a risk on God, following him, and it's going to cost us a lot? While we're doing it, what are the things that are going to keep us encouraged along the way? There are three of them here, I think. They are these. N number one, you need to remember that the Holy Spirit sent us. That you're not there alone, that the Spirit himself sent you. Second, you need to expect and remember that adversaries will confront us. And then third, you need to know and remember that even the most unlikely will believe us. Spirit sent us, adversaries will confront us, but even the most unlikely will believe us. Right, so let's have a look at the first of those, the Holy Spirit sent us. So we've got to remember that when we're out there serving Jesus in whatever place he has sent us. Um, here's Acts 13, 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, uh, they went down to Seleucia. Remember, of course, they've sent, like you said, Acts 13, 1 to 3. The Spirit comes and speaks to the church and says, hey, separate from me, Paul and Barnabas, two of your best leaders, and send them out for me. They're going to go and be missionaries in all the world, basically. So the first place they go, actually, is to the island of Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from. So it sort of makes sense. They're like, where should we figure out to go first? And Barnabas is like, home? So they went down to Seleucia and they sailed to Cyprus. A little map for you, if you like maps. Uh, the reason they had to go down is because Antioch, which is right here, is on a river called the Orontes. And then they had to travel down the river to the port city, Seleucia, and then they took this journey. This journey is about 75 miles over the ocean to Salamis, which is this, this is Cyprus, the, the, uh, the island. Salamis is on the eastern shore. They rode in that kind of thing. So please don't picture like, you know, the icon of the seas with Royal Caribbean. They, what, they, they're riding in this. Usually what they did is they pitched a tent right here on the, on the deck. And it took about 12 hours. Blech. Rocking and rolling on this major ocean. So they sail to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, that eastern city, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now there's a reason for this. Uh, the gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So there's a theological reason. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, and so they're going to go and speak to the Jewish people and give them, you know, first crack at it. Also, within the Jewish community, okay, the, the, the synagogues, there was another group of people. You had the Jewish people who were part of the community of, of God, and then you had these folks who were called the God-fearers. They were basically Gentile people who liked Judaism. They wanted to be Jewish in terms of their religion, but they weren't allowed close to things because th that was reserved for Jews. They were constantly told, it's great for you to be here and to help wor and worship our God, but you're not as good as us, right? Because we're Jewish and you're Gentile. And God likes us ultimately a little bit better because I was born a Jew. So here comes Paul and Barnabas, and they show up, and here's their message. They go to the synagogue, and there was usually an open time for sharing, especially if you're a traveling teacher or something. These guys would show up, and they'd start talking. And when Paul and Barnabas start talking, the message they would say was, Jesus uh, was the king of the Jews. He was sent from God. The prophets foretold him. He comes, he's the king of the Jews, and he's rejected by the Jewish people. And he rose again on the third day. He was died, and he rose again on the third day. And he has now commissioned us to go out and to proclaim the truth that salvation that was promised to the Jews is yes for the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. 
So all of you God-fearers in the back who've been sitting in this community and wanting to be more part of it, Jesus says, come on. Now, if you're a God-fearer, this is what you've been waiting for your whole life. What? So Christianity in the early days had a huge influence over the God-fearers. And those are the people who mostly Gentile people who were close to the, to, to the synagogue were the first people who pretty much came to know Christ among the Gentiles. The thing I want you to notice, though, most importantly, is that, yeah, they go to this island and they start preaching and they have this, you know, they, they travel all over through the synagogues and they, people believe. But the most important line I skipped right over, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. That's important because if you go back to the, just the previous verse, Acts 13, 3, it says that the church in Antioch laid their hands on them and sent them out. So which is it? Did the church send them out or did the spirit send them out? Well, from their point of view, the church laid their hands and sent them. They were commissioned by the church in Syrian Antioch, but actually they were commissioned by, by the spirit of God. If you're going to engage in missions, if you're going to engage in risk-taking, you're going to sacrifice something for Jesus. You need to know, not that some institution sent you, not that some tradition sent you, not that your family sent you, not that your feelings were what sent you, but that the Holy Spirit himself, that God himself sent you. Most important thing for anyone involved in missions or outreach to remember is that regardless of how they ended up on the field or what organization commissioned them, it was the Holy Spirit who called and sent them. Why is that so important? Listen, why is it so important for you to be actively aware while you're risk-taking for Jesus that you are in the place that the Holy Spirit commissioned you to be? Regardless of how you got there, that it was the Holy Spirit who has you there. Why is that so important? Well, let's just uh, think this through for a minute. Um, what, what does the Holy Spirit need to do in order for, let's say, a missionary to go out and serve him in, in, in a land? Do you remember when I was talking last week? Those of you who remember, I was uh, giving some statistics of different countries and how unreached they are. I mentioned Afghanistan, which is about 99.9% .9 unreached, meaning that there are about 0.1% of the people in Afghanistan who have access to the gospel. They know someone who knows the gospel and could tell it to them. 0.1% or basically 200,000 people in the entire country have that access. So if we're gonna go and we wanna reach out to the 99.9% .9 who don't have any access to the gospel, the first thing we need is workers. Why? Because you might say, well, it's a big deal. Can't God just send an angel? Can he, can he just like, I don't know, just give them a vision and they can come to faith in Christ and that way we can save time, right? You could save a lot of time. There's a lot of angels. They just appear, like they appear to Mary and stuff. Why do you need to have a worker? Well, here's why. Luke, uh, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls... On the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Like if you want to be saved, if you want to uh, be a Christian and have eternal life, it's very simple. You need to call on the name of the Lord. You need to say, Lord, save me. So we want people to be saved, and the way they get saved is that they call on the name of the Lord. But how will they call, right? Call, call. How will they call on him in whom they have not believe. See, you need to believe so that you can call so you can be saved. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? See, you need to hear so you can believe, so you can call, so you can be saved. And how are they to hear without someone Preaching. See, you need someone to preach to you so that you can hear, that you can believe, so that you can be called, so that you can be saved. And how are they to preach 
unless they are sent. Because you send them to what? To preach so that people can hear, so that they can believe, so that they can call, so that they can be saved. In other words, Paul's argument here is pretty pretty simple. Uh, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, the good news. In order for people to be saved, God has implemented it in such a way that they need to hear the gospel. There is no salvation without expressly hearing the gospel. This creates all sorts of theological problems, I know. Because you and I would like it better if we were like, well, no, people can be saved apart from hearing the gospel. Yeah, but no, they can't. No, they can't. They need to hear the gospel. And so someone needs to go and send, we need to send someone to go and preach the gospel. Do you know how hard that is? So we're going to send Afghanistan missionaries, okay? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to locate these people. So we put an ad in the uh, Christian paper or whatever on the Christian radio. Hey, come give your life, serve in Afghanistan. We get a couple phone calls and we say, you know what? Here's what's going to require. We need you to basically sell most of the stuff that you have and you need to take your family and you're going to have to move to Afghanistan. In order to do that, you're probably going to need to have some visas. You're probably going to need to have a lot of things that are going to keep you safe. If you have children, there's a likelihood you're not going to want to bring them there. So you're going to have to put them in boarding school somewhere. You're probably not going to see them, but maybe a couple times a year. Travel to and from Afghanistan is very difficult. So, if you can stomach sending your kids off to the boarding school, then you need to raise the money. The missionary's favorite moment. You get to go to all of the churches and you get to ask people who don't know you to trust you so that they can give the money, their hard-earned money that they like so much, they want to give it to you so you can go and preach the gospel in Afghanistan. So you do this tour where you go around to all the churches and you share your ministry and some people are like, they want to know exactly what you're going to be doing so they know that every one dollar that they give is going to be worthwhile. And of course, those people are being, you know, sought by 15 other missions organizations or 15 other churches to give the same money. So they've got to be committed to, to you somehow. You've got to win over their thinking. If by miracle you are able to raise the appropriate amount of money to pay for your kids to go to the boarding school and for you in Afghanistan. Then you finally go to Afghanistan, you get in the plane, you land there, and you arrive to a people group who do not want what you're selling. In fact, there's a history of them killing people who tried to sell them this. So you go and you live in your small little house and you are known all around the area as the Christians. And when people get good and mad, religiously speaking, they might blame you for all the things that are going wrong, like the floods and all of the hurricanes and all the bad things that happen in their life. You know, God's mad at us because we let the Christians here. And so they might try to kill you. In the middle of this, you get to try to preach the gospel to some people hopefully form that group into a church. Maybe try to translate the Bible, which requires knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, and then you have to translate, and the local language, you have to translate the Bible into their their local dialect so that they can, what, hear and believe and be saved. You might spend five, 10, 15 years doing this and have five converts. Anybody want to sign up for that? Anyone? I mean, honestly, when you start thinking about it, you're like, it's impossible to get a worker, right? Like, how could you possibly get a worker? Ah, well, that's why uh, we're supposed to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest so that the Lord will send workers into his heart. The only way you're going to get a worker is if the Lord decides to send them. It's the only way. Spirit's got to move in their life. So if you want to reach out to everyone, the Spirit's got to be involved in, order, in sending out the, 
The missionary also, though, when they get there and they start proclaiming the gospel to the people there, what kind of spiritual condition are those people they're proclaiming to in? Do you understand what I'm asking? Like, are they ready to receive the truth of Jesus? Well, actually, theologically, here's how this works. Um, These are descriptions of people who are apart from faith in Christ. What spiritual condition are they in? So Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes, and you were, Casey's talking about what you were like before you came to faith in Christ. You were what? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Anyone want to guess who that is? Well, Satan, yeah. The spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you're a follower of the devil and his ways. This makes you spiritually dead. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 then. The God of this world, who's that? Satan. Has blinded the minds of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See, they could see the gospel when you go and proclaim it to them if it weren't for Satan, who they're following and who has imprisoned them, blinding, actively blinding their eyes to the goodness of it. Second, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, the one who is just, you know, the way you're born... In a fallen world, the way you're born, this is a natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him. Hey, do you like this gospel? That's stupid. And he is, what, not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He does not have what's required in order for him to believe. It's like going and asking a right, someone to pitch left-handed when they don't have a left arm. So what you have in the end, the state of people who are apart from, from Christ in the world, theologically speaking, they are people who are dead in their sins, Obedient to an enemy who has blinded them so they cannot see the greatness of Jesus. You could ask them to believe in Jesus, but that would be like me asking my daughter to fix the engine of our car. Just She doesn't have what's necessary. That would be like asking me to fix the engine of our car. <laughs> don't, they don't have what's necessary. So how then are they going to be saved if they are in such prisoners, it's prisoners of Satan and they're blinded and they're dead? How can this possibly happen? Well, you and I, see, we know somebody who shines light into darkness and opens the eyes of the blind, don't we? Yes, so Jesus, uh, this is about the rich ruler. Hey, Jesus, uh, I, tell me how to have eternal life. Keep the commandments. I've kept them all. Really, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. We'll put that to a test and see whether or not you actually are gonna keep me first, right? Have no other gods before you. So let's figure out if that's the case. He's like, man, I know, I'm rich. So he goes away sad. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. See, it blinds them, this wealth. It makes them think that they have everything taken care of. It's easier for a camel, big animal, to go through the eye of a needle, small hole, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Like, who can, if it's so hard, who can be saved, Jesus? We're all up a creek. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with, with God. Look, I'm going into great detail here simply to say that the spirit opens the eyes of the blind, the spirit raises the dead, the spirit sends missionaries, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
So the most important thing for anyone involved in missions or outreach to remember is that regardless of how they ended up on the field or what organization commissioned them, it was the Holy Spirit who called, sent, accompanies, and empowers them. You have to know this. You are not alone. Whenever you take a risk on Jesus, you are not alone. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, the Great Commission, right? You are not alone. God himself sent you. You know, if that actually ends up getting inside of you, that knowledge, uh, it does a couple of things. Number one, it makes you really dependent because you start looking at the mountain and you're like, yeah, there's no way I'm climbing that. The only way I'm climbing that if I have a jetpack. And the Lord says, oh, I got that. I got that. What I need you to do is I need you to push the jetpack button. I need you to start climbing. I need you to start walking up the hill. It's gonna be hard. I need you to start walking up the hill, but I'm gonna power that baby. We're gonna go right up this mountain because I can do it. I just, I just need you to agree with me. So we become really dependent and we start praying a lot, don't we? Because we, we know that no matter what happens in our lives, if Jesus, if you're not with me, I am so hosed. I am out on a ledge that's breaking and unless you hold on to the Lord, unless you make the ledge stay, I'm done. So you get massively, massively dependent on, on God and you end up thinking that it, listen, I'm not the one who's going to bring success or failure. I don't have what it takes to bring success or failure. Only God can bring success. So when there's a great move of the spirit and revival, I know one thing, it wasn't because I'm amazing. Also, when they don't believe, I know one thing, it's not because I stink at it. It's not dependent on me anyway. It's dependent on God. He's the only one who can break the spiritual forces. He's the only one who can give sight to the blind. And so if I'm talking to you about Jesus and you don't want it, that's not my, it's not that I, I didn't like make the argument wrong. God could save you, boo, just with a few words. And if he doesn't, that's, that's between God, that's God's business. I'm just dependent on him. So it makes you dependent, but you know what else it does? It makes you bold. It makes you really bold. You know why it makes you bold? <laughs> because God sent you. If you're standing in a, in, in a shop and, uh, you know, a high-end clothing shop and you've got your pants that cost $400 over your arm and think, these, finally, these are going to make me look thin. For, they're 400 bucks. So you walk out and, and you've got your pants there and, and at the counter, they're ready to ring you up and behind you is somebody who has the same pants and while they're paying attention to you, the counter, they start shoving those pants in their, in their bag. And they take a right-hand turn and start walking out. You see them, no one else sees them, you see them. They're, they're stealing this thing. Now, listen, if you are just a normal everyday person like you and me, the likelihood of you saying something is probably not really high. You might, you might, but the likelihood of you saying something is not really high. You know why? You have no authority. I mean, you could try it. You can be like, citizens arrest. And that person will be like, oh, come on. And they'll just run. What are you going to do? Well, nothing. Because I have no authority. However, if you are an undercover cop, you know, and you've got the 300 pair of pants because cops are paid so well. You've got, and, and you're going to buy these. And all of a sudden, that person starts out. What do you see? Are you, is there a likelihood you might say something? Well, of course there is. Why? Because of the authority that you have backing you up. The state commissioned you and sent you and empowers you to keep the people safe and to keep the laws of the land. And so when someone's breaking the law, you get to say, no, back. If people act that boldly when they have the authority of the state behind them, can you imagine how you and I should act if we have the the authority of the living God? Oh my word. Really? really? We should somehow be demure about our faith commitments. We should somehow be, oh, I don't know, I know. Yeah, my viewpoints are a little bit weird and stuff. 
Really? God sent you. God sent you. Now, when you know that, there's some things that'll start happening, okay? In the rest of the passage, well, the first thing you need to know is the Holy Spirit sent you. There's a reason I spent a long time on that. It's like the biggest one. Second, you're like, this is gonna last forever. No, it won't, I promise. Remember, adversaries will confront us. Look at verse six of the passage, right? So they travel all the way through. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, if I put that map up again, you'll see that Paphos is now on the west side of the island. So they have zigzagged across the island. The idea is, and they preached everywhere, all the synagogues they went to. And they finally get to Paphos. And they came upon a certain magician. Want to see a card trick? No, not that kind. Not the David Blaine kind. Not the, I'm going to make the Statue of Liberty disappear. Not that kind. The kind that manipulates the spiritual entities in order to get what you want done. You pay me, I will manipulate the entities, and then we will get what you want done. Look, people from all over the religious background in that day, even Jewish who are monotheists, the way that they believed the world worked was, okay, there is a God or there are gods, but they have not a lot to do with us. They're busy doing their God things. And then there's us down here. But in between are these spiritual entities, you know, we would call them angels and demons. Others would call them other things. But these spiritual forces, and they can be manipulated if you say the right words. Or if you promise to give them certain things. So you can come up with books of incantations. You can read the future by asking them what's going to happen in the next few days. I'll give you this, I'll give, I'll give you this cow's stomach. And so we had lots, most, court, most courts, right? Most leaders had a court magician. They had somebody there so that when they wanted to go into some sort of battle, they would say to the court magician, do you think this is going to work? And he would say, hold on, let me arrange the organs of the animal to see how they predict the future. The gods will tell us. But by gods, they mean the intermediaries. That's what this guy is. He's a magician. What's weird about him is that he's, he's Jewish and he's a false prophet. So you'd expect more from him. Yeah. He's a monotheist. You'd expect more from him. His name is Bar-Jesus. Do you know how, do you know what this means? Son of. <laughs> His name's Son of Jesus. Well, that's hopeful. Right? You show up and the Son of Jesus is here. He was with the proconsul. This is the governor of the island, Sergius Paulus, who was a man of intelligence, not an idiot. He's not being duped by someone because he's not smart enough. He summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He wanted to hear the word of God. He's been, they've been traveling all over the island preaching this stuff, probably accompanied by amazing things happening. You know, when, when they were preaching in Jerusalem, there were healings and miracles and all sorts of stuff. This guy's probably heard, this is the, 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 the island of Cyprus is all abuzz with this sort of thing. But Elymas, that's the magician's name, Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, that's the meaning of his name, Elymas opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This, he's going to lose a lot of money here, yeah, and a lot of power. If, if this proconsul believes in Jesus, the first thing he's going to do is being like, I don't need Elymas here anymore. I don't need the son of Jesus because I got dad. So... He's fired. So this guy sees this. He's not an idiot. And he sees this and he thinks, you know what? I need, I need to stand in the way. I need to stop this from happening. You know, you will find that anytime you take a risk on Jesus, the any, anytime you want to go and reach out to people, anytime you want to follow the living God, one of the things that you'll find is opposition is right on the heels of it right on, on the heels of it, which is weird for people like you and me. You know why? Because people like you and me, um, we, like, we like to think of our world, we, we like using terms like, it's a God thing. You ever heard that? It's a God thing. People say it's a God thing when something uh, is, works out just right. You know, all of the pieces fit into place. It's a God thing. 
How did you end up here? Oh, it's such a God thing. And they tell you this great story, which of course it is a God thing. You know what people don't use the phrase it's a God thing for? Sickness. Suffering. You ever heard somebody who's suffering? Oh, it's a God thing. (laughs) No, we don't think that because the way we think about it is that the stuff that God's involved in is the good stuff. In fact, the sign that God is with you, the sign that God is pleased with the things that you're doing and the ways that you're making decisions is if things are going well. When I ride my bike, I pray, Lord, bring the wind at my back. I want to ride. We believe that if God is with us, it's going to be a tailwind the whole way. And then when the headwind comes, we're like, wait, what? Maybe I heard wrong. Maybe this isn't a God thing. Maybe I made a decision to do something that the Lord's not pleased with because it's not easy. But here's the thing. A passage like this should immediately remind you that God is in all the things. That just because something is hard doesn't mean that it's not that it's not a God thing. The Holy Spirit actually was empowering these men and sent these men, but they still faced opposition. It wasn't easy. And the truth is the Spirit-led ministry is often really hard. Real mission is full of opposition. Don't Don't be surprised when it comes. When it comes, you should be saying, oh, I was expecting you. What took you so long? George Whitfield is one of my favorite Christians in all of history. He's a preacher I've told you about before. He used to put a box on the ground in the middle of a field and he'd stand on it and he'd preach to like 30,000 people. Probably one of the greatest turnings to Christ in the history of the, of the world, to be honest with you, is the first great awakening where he and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards were proclaiming the gospel and people were coming to faith all over the place. Anyway, Whitfield would go out, and of course, when you go out there and you're in this field, there, there's, no, there's no security. There's nobody who's going to stop, you know, mockers from coming, people who want to oppose the message. And so in his, in his biography, one of his biographers wrote this. He said, Whitfield's enemies would frequently try to disrupt his meetings by blowing loud trumpets and shouting obscenities. On some occasions, violent mobs would actually attack those who were listening to his preaching, maiming the men and stripping off the women's clothing. Whitfield also suffered acutely from this vehement hatred, being stoned once, clubbed twice, whipped on at least half a dozen occasions. Can you imagine preaching and they bring out the whip? I know you thought it, but don't... Whipped on at least half a dozen occasions and beaten an equal number of times. It was not infrequent for his sermons to be interrupted by having stones, dirt, manure, and pieces of dead cat thrown in his face. On one occasion, a man climbed a tree above where Whitfield was preaching. In an attempt to divert attention away from Whitfield, the man pulled down his trousers and exposed himself to the crowd. Failing to achieve the diversion he desired, the man began to urinate on Whitfield. You know what's crazy about George Whitley? He never quit. <laughs> you could pee on him, throw cats at him. <laughs> he just, just keep going, man. And what happened when he kept going? Well, see, here's the part, the last part, right? Even the most unlikely are going to believe us. Despite the opposition, even the most likely are going to believe us. Um, Acts 13, verse 9, here's how this story ends. But Saul, who was also called Paul, by the way, this is just his Roman name, and that's his Hebrew name. So Saul, and now he's in Roman territory. He would have been called Saul when he's around all his Jewish friends, but now he's Paul because he's in a Roman area. He was also called Paul. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Whoa, whoa, he shows up again, that spirit. Sent by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, raised up by the Spirit. It's almost like the Spirit's the one doing all this. But he was filled with this Holy Spirit and he looked intently at him. This word means uh, directly in his eyes. So like the gaze of the Apostle Paul. And he said, words, anyway, you son of the devil, <laughs> right? Because remember, he is, um, he's the son of Jesus. No, you're no son of Jesus. You're son of the devil. You're, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. 
Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not able to see for some times. Paul's basically going like, you know what I experienced? Here you go. Which should give you some indication that the story's not finished for Elemis Bar-Jesus, right? Because the story wasn't finished for Paul when he got blind. There's hope for this guy that he might actually live up to his name. He might actually become a son of Jesus. We don't know yet, but you're gonna be blind for a while and go off and sit in the corner and think about these things. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This guy who is leading the proconsul by his heart with twisted words is now being led by the hand by other people And then the proconsul believed. Yeah, that's right. The proconsul believed. The governor of the land believed when he saw what had occurred, for he astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Uh, Although there's opposition to spirit-led mission, God remains undefeated. You can try to stop him. You can try to stop the church of of the living God. You can stand in his way. You can pass laws. You can throw dead cats. You can do whatever you want, but God remains undefeated. We're still here. Martyrs have come. We've been mocked to the edge of the earth, but we're still here. No one can stop the Lord Almighty. He saves even the most un. Likely, you know, let me finish with this. Jonathan Lehman is a, he's a pastor and he wrote a book called Reverberation a few years ago and he told this great story about it. Here's what he said. He said, Richard Ellaloo had no interest in reading the Bible. He was a Muslim after all and he lived in one of the strongest Muslim enclaves in Nigeria. Still, he did figure out a way to put the Bible given to him by a Christian to good use. Its crackly thin pages were perfect for rolling joints. Paper for rolling our own joints were expensive, he said, so, so we would tear out pages from the Bible and use them for our rolling papers. On one occasion in 1978, Richard tore a page from the Bible for rolling a joint, but ended up stuffing it into his pocket. That night, bored and unable to sleep, he pulled the page of the Bible from the pocket and read these words from Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. For the next three weeks, he couldn't get the verse out of his head. He returned to the Christian who had given him the Bible and shared the gospel with him. And then one night, alone in his room, Richard prayed, Lord God, I want to taste you like that verse says. And that same evening, he accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. But... There was opposition, immediately opposition. Richard's Muslim family and community did not respond very well. At first they expressed concern, then they displayed anger, and then, they re- then he started receiving death threats. Richard was the first convert in the community and so it felt like a grave threat to everyone. Local mosque leaders denounced him on the mosque's outdoor speakers. His own father told him he would rather see him dead. He had to spend every night in a different missionary's house because of the danger, but, but, but Richard kept believing. Eventually, he left for another community in Nigeria to attend Bible school and then returned to his home community to pastor a church of factory and government workers who had migrated there. The death threats resumed at a rapid clip. That was normal for him and his, mission, and his ministry, as well as acts of vandalism against the church building. The police locked, uh, looked the other way Richard was forced to move finally to the United States and protect his wife and children and gain more Bible training. But look, his story demonstrates that God can save even the most unlikely people. Even while they're rolling a joint. I think I told you before that when George Whitfield was standing there preaching on his little box, some people would copy him off in the distance, when he, Whitfield say a word, the other guy would say a word, Whitfield say a word, the other guy said a word, in a mocking tone. One of the guys who stood up in that box, he started mocking Whitfield halfway through the sermon, he stopped and all his friends said, what's wrong, keep going. 
And he said, I can't. I think I believe him. Is following Jesus harder than you thought it would be? You face opposition to the risks you take for Christ. There are things that stand in your way and you wonder why in the world is this happening if God is with me? Maybe I made a wrong decision. Maybe I took the wrong risk. It's never gonna work out. Oh man, come on. You're on a mission from God. Satan doesn't like it. The opposition's not a sign of failure, but a sign of the road to success. And God is undefeated. Maybe we ought to be a little bit bolder then. Hmm? Let me pray for us, Lord. I'm thankful for your kindness and for a passage like this, Lord, where, you know, Paul, filled by the Spirit, ends up saying some of the harshest words around to the guy who's got the ear of the governor, Father. What a risk. And yet, and yet, You accompany all of that with the power of the Spirit and we see amazing things happen. Father, I pray a couple things. I pray that you would increase the risk-taking of our church and our people, that you would help us to be more dependent on you that we, as we go out, Father, but that we would go out, that we would serve you in whatever sphere you've placed us and that you would, we would recognize that we are there because you sent us and that God himself accompanies us in this mission. And I pray, Lord, that we would see great and mighty things. That opposition, yes, it's going to come, Father. I was not to be shocked by that. But when it comes, Lord, would you show us your power in defeating it in whatever way you see fit. And I pray, Lord, our stories would be told like these ones in Acts, that our stories would be told far and wide as we, re as we remember the power and majesty of our God. We pray it, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.